<laughs> well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I want to welcome all of you here, here in person, especially our students. Thanks, you guys, for coming. And I, of course, want to welcome all of you who are joining us online. If I've not met you yet, my name is Jeremiah. I serve here as the youth director, which means I get to walk with students as they enter sixth grade until they graduate high school. Now, since this is my first Sunday preaching, I thought we would start off by uh, me just telling you guys a little bit more about myself. And we'll start with the best part about me, which is my family. So I have some pictures of my wonderful family up there. I like to show them off any chance I get. Um, my wife, Ellie, and I have been married for nine years now. And uh, she's a teacher over just across the parking lot at ECS, where she teaches fifth grade science and Bible. And then we have a daughter named Aria, who is four years old, and those three pictures describe her perfectly. Uh, at Mother's Day, we had ran out of crumble cookie, so she was a little disappointed at the end of service. She's a crumble addict. Um, and then uh, she's in preschool, loves class, loves um, driving around in her little red car. That's her. Um, and then my son, Aiden, those pictures describe him. He is a little ball of chaos and energy. Um, that was a day at uh, the zoo where he saw a giraffe for the first time. He is two years old and this tall. And so he did what any kid would do, immediately began to roar and scream at it at the top of his lungs because he has a reckless amount of self-confidence. Now, <laughs> that is my family. Uh, as for myself... I am a true Southern boy at heart, spent most of my life down South. And uh, to be a true Southern boy at heart, you have to have five things that matter to you more than anything else. And they all start with F. The first is, of course, faith, family, football, friends, and food. Like that's, that is the South all wrapped up. And that's me, right? Nothing else really matters. Has those five things. Now, specifically, I grew up mainly in the great state of Tennessee, so I am a Vols fan. Uh, I know that is not a good thing here, especially with Phil, right? He's probably not going to let me back on stage after talking about Tennessee, but um, that is where I grew up, and that is something that I love dearly, including the Vols. Growing up uh, in the South, there was a saying that I heard a lot, or an expression, and when you say it, you have to say it a certain way, and that's man, that's good enough. Now, like when you say good enough, you have to say it from the back of your throat. You have to say it with a certain amount of like disapproval and dismissal at the same time. I want to teach you guys how to speak Southern. We wouldn't use Southern dialect down there. So I want you guys all to try it yourself and just say good enough. Not quite good enough. Let's try it again. Like remember... You got to be just like a little dismissive, a little disapproval, even though you're saying a good thing. So everybody try it again. Man, that's good. There you go. Now, this is a saying you might use, say you're like in the atrium after church and you're with a group and you're all trying to figure out where you want to go out to eat and people are throwing out ideas left and right and nothing's quite sticking. And then somebody goes like, what about Applebee's? And you're like, I don't really love it. I don't really hate it, it's, there you go. Uh, all day you've been trying to get your kids to do their chores. Maybe it's folding laundry or it's mowing the yard and when they finally get it done, the laundry is not folded right and the lines are crooked but you've been fighting all day so you just say to yourself, man, it's good enough. 
At work, you're desperate to hire somebody to the point where you're like, if they have a pulse, they are good enough. Now, my adoptive family got me when I was 12 years old, and if you ask them, they would say all throughout my teenage years, I was the king of just good enough. Doing something to where I did it well enough that I didn't have to do it again, but did it poor enough that they knew I didn't really try that hard. Now, that attitude of good enough doesn't just affect our work ethic or food. Uh, I think that it begins to seep into us as people. It becomes an attitude, a way that we even look at ourselves. I'm sure that at some point in your life, you've looked in the mirror, you've just wondered, am I good enough? Am I a good person? If somebody went through my life and they asked the people around me, my friends, my family, my kids, am I a good person, how would they respond? What if they went and found your ex and asked them? As I was writing this and I was thinking about that idea of being good enough or being a good enough person, I started to get kind of anxious. What would those people say? And so to help calm myself down, I did what any good millennial does and I went to the internet and I Googled, am I a good person test? Now, when I did that on uh, this past Monday, I got 5 billion results in 0.61 seconds. Apparently, we as people are really concerned with finding out if we're good enough, if we are good people. And now, church, can I be really honest with you guys for a second? As I say this next part, I don't want you to hear me as attacking or condemning the church. And when I use the word church, I don't mean crossroads. I mean the global, big capital C church. And I love the church. It's the bride of Christ. I've given my life to it. But when I look at the church as a whole, I see this good enough attitude starting to seep in. And instead of chasing being transformed and being like Jesus, that's what Christian means, Christ-like, we're chasing good enough. We're chasing, am I a good person? Am I better than the people that are around me? Because if I am, that's good enough. And maybe we're chasing that because being like Jesus on the surface, man, that means giving up a lot. You know, Scripture says it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. So to, to truly be transformed and be like Jesus, it means giving up our identity, maybe our stuff, our hopes, our dreams, now, it might feel that way, but really what it is, is it's taking those things, putting them at the feet of Jesus, and picking up what he has for us and trusting that it's better. Maybe we choose to chase good enough or being a good person because, well, being like Jesus is really hard. Jesus says that someone walks up and smacks you in the face to turn the other cheek. Jesus, while he was getting nailed to a cross, forgave those people. He says to love those who persecute you. My flesh does not want to do that. I would much rather be a good person. And if that had been the sales pitch at 16 for following Jesus, I don't know if I would have said yes. Being good is so much easier than being like Jesus. So I found that for a lot of us, myself included, because this was my story, I stood in this middle ground, close enough to Jesus that I was kind of better than most people but far enough away that I didn't have to be transformed at my core. That's the pursuit of good enough. 
Now, for me personally, I was at a point in my life where I just pretended to do church and I did it well enough that I was getting paid to do church. I was helping lead worship and I wasn't a Christian, but I looked good enough. My behaviors were good enough. The way I led my peers was good enough. All while on the inside, I was empty and I was hollow. And it wasn't until I got serious about my relationship with Jesus and I welcomed the spirit into my life that things really began to change. Now, today we are continuing our look in the book of Romans, and if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out and head over to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17 today. And in this passage, you're going to see this reality that Paul talks about. He says, no matter what we're doing, we're chasing one of two things. We're either chasing life in the flesh, or we're chasing life in the spirit. And you'll notice there's no third option. There's no pursuit of good enough. There's no pursuit of being a good person. He says you're in the flesh or you're in the spirit. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to break down three key differences between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. Let's start with chapter eight, verse one. It says, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So immediately Paul jumps into these two realities, the law of sin and death, the life in the flesh versus the law of freedom in Jesus, life in the spirit. And so our first big difference we're gonna look at is if uh, flesh versus spirit is we live a life condemned, the flesh, or we live a life set free, the spirit. Now let's talk about the good news first. Romans chapter eight, verse one should be a verse that we all get really excited when we hear, because that should be our reality as Jesus followers. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But this verse starts with a really important word, therefore. There's an old preacher saying, anytime you come to a therefore, you should ask what is the therefore, therefore. And that means we have to take a look back at chapter seven, which Pastor Phil preached on last week. And in chapter seven, Paul talks about this tension that he's in where he says, God, I don't do what I wanna do, but what I wanna do, I can't do, but I'm trying to do, 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 do. And he just keeps going on. And he says, well, I'm in this place of doing what I don't wanna do because I can't quite do it and I don't wanna do it. God, I'm just gonna worship you through that. And on the surface, it can look kind of confusing, but when we break it down, it's really simple. Paul is saying, Jesus, I want to do the right thing. I want to be like you, but I can't. I keep slipping, I keep falling, I keep sinning, but I keep repenting and turning back to you. I keep chasing after you. And when I'm in that space, your grace and your sacrifice are big enough to cover that. And you don't kick me out of heaven for that. Therefore, because that's my reality, because I'm chasing you, there is no condemnation for me. That is life in the spirit. That's life set free. And that's something we should all get really excited for. We are not Christians because we're perfect. We're Christians because we realize we're broken and we need a savior. And when, as long as we're repenting of that sin and we're chasing after him, the grace that he has, the sacrifice is big enough to cover us. We can go back to one of my top five loves. Talk about football for a minute. The world's best running back, which is not Jonathan Taylor, but the world's best running back is going to slip, fall, and get tackled 
100% of the time, right? But what makes them the best running back is that when they fall, they fall forward, they get up, they go back to the huddle, and they keep pressing on. That is our life as Christians. That's our reality of life in the spirit, which is the exact opposite of life in the flesh. Now, this isn't our excuse to just do whatever we want to, right? Paul talked about this earlier in chapter six, verses one through two. He said, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that way grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We have to keep our eyes set on that goal and chasing after Jesus. We can't just choose to live in our sin and say, man, this is good enough. Now, the flesh is the exact opposite because it is condemnation in itself. And I want to approach that word condemnation from two different directions for the believer and the unbeliever. You see, we sometimes trick ourselves that if we made a choice, we got baptized and that we're good, we don't have to do anything anymore, but the believer can still live in condemnation. Now, the key word I said there is live. Our reality is we are set free, but we don't always choose that freedom. You can think about it this way. If sin is a prison and we're all stuck in it, Jesus' sacrifice is what gets us out. And so Jesus comes in, he says, hey, anyone who believes in me on the way, the truth, and the life can get out. And we say, hey, I want that deal, right? And so he rips that cell door off and he says, great, you're free to go. And some of us take those steps of freedom. And then some of us look at our guilt and our shame and we can't move past it. The door is gone. We're free to go. Jesus is screaming, come on, follow me. But we just stand there paralyzed by our past. Now, you might be thinking, Jeremiah, I thought that like guilt, shame, all that is a part of following Jesus. Like you make the commitment, the spirit comes in you and the spirit tells you what you're doing right and wrong, gives you all that stuff. You're like this close. The Greek words for guilt and shame are never once in scripture associated with followers of Jesus. Now, there is this principle that's talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Here's what Paul says. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Now, there's two uh, key words we're going to hone in on there. Godly sorrow comes from the Greek word lupeo. Everybody say lupeo. Congratulations. Now you guys are speaking very good Greek. That Greek word lupeo occurs multiple times in the New Testament, and it's what we're supposed to feel as Christians. One of my favorite stories or examples of this is the story of the apostle Peter. I really like stories about Peter because he makes me feel really good about myself, right? Dude was constantly sticking his own foot in his mouth, and this is one of those times. Peter is with Jesus on the night he's going to be betrayed, and he's going to end up the next day dying on the cross. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me. And he goes, no, there's no chance. And Jesus goes, yeah, you're going to do it three different times. And as the night progresses, Peter denies Jesus three times. In Jesus' hour of need, he bails. And then after Jesus dies, instead of keeping the commitments that Jesus had asked from his followers, instead of living out his teachings, Peter goes fishing because that's what he knew. So Jesus uh, dies on the cross. He's resurrected. He goes to the shore and he sees Peter out in a boat. Peter sees him. He swims to shore. He's freaking out. Jesus, you're alive. You're back. And Jesus goes, yeah. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Peter goes, yeah, Jesus, you know I love you. No, 
do you love me? Well, yes, Jesus, I love you. And then he asked him a third time, mirroring the three times that Peter had just denied him, no, do you love me? And scripture says in his heart, he was hurt. Now the word that's used for hurt there is the Greek word lupeo. In that moment, whenever he's confronted by his sin against the person he sinned against, who's God, he doesn't choose guilt or shame. He chooses lupeo. This hurt that leads to repentance, salvation, and the key part, it leaves no regret. Peter didn't spend the book of Acts or any of his epistles introducing himself as, hi, I'm Peter, the apostle who denied Jesus. No, he pivots past that. He lives a life set free. And that's where we're called to be as Christians. But so often we choose the other word in 2 Corinthians, which is the Greek word, anokos. Now, anokos is used multiple times in the New Testament, always for condemnation, guilt, shame, and condemning people to death because they're guilty of a crime. That is our word, guilt. And one of the key times we see this word used is in the life of Judas. So Judas was a lot like Peter. They were both apostles. They had both lived with Jesus. They had both walked with him, heard his teaching, seen him forgive sin, seen him uh, do all sorts of miracles. And there was something in Judas's heart that said, I'm going to betray Jesus. And he goes and he literally sells out Jesus. And they have this moment in the garden, the same time frame when Peter's getting ready to deny Jesus, right? These events are happening together. And Judas confronts Jesus with the temple guard. And there's a a word that we skip over so much at Good Friday and at Easter services that I think we should just spend a whole Sunday talking about. When Jesus looks at Judas, after Judas betrayed him, the last word that we have recorded that Jesus said to Judas is the word friend. In that moment, confronted with his sin, confronted with his betrayal, he could have chosen to really hear Jesus. He could have chosen forgiveness. He could have chosen repentance. He could have trusted that Jesus would forgive him just like he had done everyone else. But instead, the word that's used to describe how Judas felt is anokos. And if we follow the story of Judas, then we know it does not end well. Judas is never restored like Peter, and he never moves past his guilt and his shame. You see, when we as Christ followers choose to live in that space, it's like looking at Jesus on the cross and saying, thanks, but that's not enough. You can't cover my guilt and my shame. That is not life in the spirit, and that's not the life that Jesus has promised us. So we can choose to live in that condemnation or live set free. And now I want to talk to you if you're in here and you would say that you are an unbeliever. You've never committed to follow Jesus. You've never been baptized. Well, then scripture doesn't really mince words. It says you're living in this reality of condemnation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. See, we all have this sin problem that Paul's talked about in Romans, right? In chapter three, he said, all of us have sinned. In chapter six, he says, the wages of that sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. We have to be in Christ or we live condemned. 
Now, when I did go to church as a kid, I went to Southern Baptist churches, and it's at about this point that I wanna embrace that hellfire and brimstone that I grew up with, and we can talk about hell and condemnation and sin, and and I don't wanna do that. If you're an unbeliever, please don't let the idea and the reality of punishment for sin and hell be what drives you to Jesus. Earlier in the book of Romans in chapter two, Paul said, don't you understand that it's God's kindness that is intended to lead you to repentance. The reason I want to follow Jesus and be like Jesus is not a get out of jail free card. It's a good perk, but it's not the reason. The reason is I've witnessed firsthand him heal me. I've witnessed firsthand his restoration, and it's the only thing that works. And I want to be like him, not get a free pass. So if you're in here and you would say, I'm not a believer, then as we continue to read uh, and look at these two different realities, life in the flesh and life in the spirit, my question to you is just to ask yourself, which life do you want to live? Let's continue reading. We're gonna jump down to verses five through eight. It says, for those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Now here, Paul's just giving us a basic rundown of attributes, right? So the flesh desires a spiritual death. It's hostile to God and it's unable to please God versus the spirit, which desires life and peace. And if we're choosing what we're gonna sign up for, I would really like option two. But that, uh, that option, that reality, these qualities have to make us stop and think for a minute and look in the mirror and ask a really hard question. You see, the second key difference between life in the flesh and life in the spirit is what we're chasing. We chase either the desires of our flesh or the desires of the spirit. As I said earlier, I have two amazing kids and they are full of joy and happiness and innocence. And right now they are so full of so much curiosity. I feel like I spend every day answering the question, daddy, why? Why can't we watch another episode of Doc McStuffins? Why can't we have ice cream for dinner? Why do you drive a car and mommy drives a van? Why do you have to walk the dog? Daddy, why? Daddy, why? Daddy, why, why, why? It's a beautiful face. Do any of your parents remember that face? Yes, do any parents need special prayer because you're still stuck in it? The thing that I love the most about this face is it has made me stop and really answer their questions. Why am I doing what I'm doing. And if we want to find out if we're living for the flesh or living for the spirit, then we have to slow down in our busy lives, stop and ask, why? Why do I work my current job? Is this what the spirit has called me to do and asked me to do? Or is this just really good for me? It sets me up really well. I like it. And it helps me provide for my family. Why do I want to move into that house in that neighborhood? Is that where God has called me and my family to be a light in a dark world? Or does it come with a special status and an image that I want to make sure that I have? Why am I sending my kids to this certain school? 
Is the spirit leading us there to have an impact on that community? Or do I just want to make sure that they went to the same place I did? Or I want to make sure that they have access to the world's best marching band or the best football program or whatever it may be. The whys behind our actions matter because we can be doing good things with bad motivations, and that is life in the flesh, not life in the spirit. And as we begin to unpack those whys and answer those hard questions ourselves, I want to talk to you about a promise that you have. You see, there are certain promises in Scripture that we really like, like the promise that we serve a God who's bigger than our fears. We love that. We serve a God who's bigger than our problems, and we love that. But we also serve a God who's bigger than our hopes and our dreams. You see, life in the Spirit promises you a life governed by life and peace, something we could all use more of. Let's take a look at our third key difference, which we can find down in verses 9 and 10. It says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, then they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. Our third key difference uh, is simple. Is the spirit living and working in me or am I just surviving on my own power? That's simple enough to say, but it might be a little harder to break down. If the Spirit is living and working in you, then everything about you begins to change. Scripture promises us that the Spirit becomes our power source. He sustains us. Whenever we we go to God's Word, the Spirit helps us there, interprets it, makes God's Word alive in the daily bread for our souls. Our prayer lives become two-way streets where we're able to talk and have time with God, and He speaks back to us. We begin to realize that worship isn't about a song on Sunday. It's about a lifestyle. And when we do come and we sing those songs, that praise becomes a time where we honor God for who he is, what he's done, and what he will do in our lives. We begin to see the fruit of the Spirit occurring in our lives, not because we're trying hard to be good, but because the Spirit is living in and working in us. If we don't see that fruit in our life, if scripture is dull and praise and worship is singing some weird songs on Sunday and prayer is talking to the wall, then we might be living on our own power. So now instead of asking ourselves the question, am I good enough or am I a good person? I have some more questions for us just to sit on. Am I living in the spirit? Am I living a life of condemnation or one that is set free? Am I chasing my own desires or the desires of the Spirit? And am I seeing the Spirit at work in me? I want to give us one last example of life in the flesh versus life in the Spirit, because it's the, the one that made me open my eyes when I was 16 and just kind of doing church. And it's a story that Jesus told. It's probably one that you've heard before. It's the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. And in that story, we see a great example of life in the flesh, right? Kind of a dumb guy who's easy to beat up on at church. He goes to his dad, says, I wish you were dead. Give me all your money or give me my portion of the inheritance. He takes it and he goes crazy with it, right? He's going after all the women he wants, all the drinks, all the food, all just the crazy life, the fleshly desires 
that we're all easy to point to and say, yeah, I'm not doing that stuff. And then once the money runs out, he's thinking about going home, but he's instantly condemning himself, saying, my father won't let me. Again, another sign of life in the flesh. But we know the next part of the story, right? The great part of the story. He starts to come home and the father sees him. He runs to him. He hugs him. He kisses him. He restores him. All the promises we have from Jesus for life in the spirit. That's not the part of the story I want to talk about. For some reason, we started calling this the parable of the lost son instead of sons. There's two in the story and both were living in the flesh. You see, he has an older brother, and we learn in the story that this older brother did everything right. He was always with the father. He always did what he was told. He always did it well. At the story, when the brother is coming home, the older brother is also coming home. He's coming from work, and he sees that there's this party happening, this celebration, and then he hears why, and we find out his desires were not the desires of the father. He's angry, he's bitter, he's mad that he's never been celebrated like this. And so whenever he gets to the house, he won't even come inside. The father runs to him and says, listen, just come in. Your lost brother has come home. And instead he stays outside, he condemns himself, and he pouts. He lived in this space where he was close enough to the father to be the good brother, but far enough away that he was never transformed. My hope and my prayer for all of us is that instead of chasing good enough, we chase life in the spirit and being transformed to be like Jesus. So I want to end our time together with three quick things that we can pursue, that we can chase to keep this life in the spirit. The first is to pursue an intimate relationship with God, with the Father. Paul continues in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. He says, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is an intimate Aramaic word for father. In our culture, we would translate that as dad or daddy. Paul is saying that when the spirit comes into you, your relationship with God changes and it's supposed to be intimate. At Crossroads, we say that our vision is a church full of people who live and love like Jesus. And one of the things that we need to do in order to, be, to do that is to be with God. Now, when we say be with God, we mean this, creating an intimate relationship with God. And maybe for you, that's through reading scripture. That's his word that we have that we can access anytime and creating a regular rhythm of prayer, just moments where you can be intimate with God or, or practicing the spiritual disciplines. All of these things are not to-do lists. They're moments that create intimacy with God. If you would say I wouldn't describe my relationship with God as intimate, then I have a QR code that I want you to scan. We've been working on uh, this thing called the roadmap. I'm sure you've heard us talk about it here at Crossroads before. And this section will take you directly to being with God. There's multiple videos, resources, all sorts of different things that'll help you learn to create that space to be with your father. The next thing that I want us to pursue is uh, community and accountability. You see, life uh, is best with people and transformation happens best in community. 
If we look at the story of scripture as a whole, we'll find out that the first crisis that humans ever faced was before sin entered the picture. The first crisis in the Bible was Adam was alone. We were never designed to be alone. Throughout the Old Testament, there's verses like, as iron sharpens iron, so does one brother sharpen another. There's verses in the New Testament telling us to bear each other's burdens and to meet each other's needs. This walk was never meant to be solo. It was always made to be with others. Now, what does that mean for you next steps wise? Well, if you're a man, I would highly encourage you to join Better Men. It's a men's group that we have that just started that I'm a part of and the last two weeks have been great. Surrounding myself with other men who are chasing after the same goal that I am is transformational. Maybe if you're a woman, it's joining women's ministry or if neither of those work for your schedule, we have adult small groups that meet throughout the week. There's one for you. There's a space for you to find that accountability and that community. If you're a student, there's youth every Sunday night. And as a part of youth, we have groups that meet. This is your space. And maybe if you're not coming, this is your chance to start. And if you are, maybe this is your invitation to take it seriously and let it be a group that is helping push you closer to God. If you're a young adult or a college student, there's a group for you too. It's every Thursday night. I'd invite you to go find a mentor, someone who will help pour into you because we need that. Now, if that is your next step, that's what you're missing in life, as soon as we're done, you can head out these doors. There's a big wooden desk in the atrium, the Connection Center, and there's a team of people there, and their only goal is to connect you to community. The third thing I have for us to chase is to pursue the kingdom. Paul ends this section of Romans by saying, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I was born down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is a very different place in the world, Um, but it's still in the U.S. and it makes me a U.S. citizen. That, uh, yeah, that citizenship comes with a lot of responsibilities, Every April, I have to pay my taxes. Uh, I'm supposed to vote. I'm supposed to have jury duty. When I went to college, I had to declare for the draft. We all know people who take those civic duties seriously. We all know people who could just kind of care less. When we choose to follow Jesus, Scripture gives us this image that we're buried with Christ in our baptism and we're raised to walk in a new life. And that new life comes with new citizenship. Maybe you've heard it said that we're citizens of heaven, but Paul takes that a step further here. He doesn't call us citizens. You see, a citizen can be passive and not care. He calls us co-heirs with Christ. We have a responsibility to this new kingdom. And there's two very easy ways you can pursue this kingdom. The first is just by telling people about it, telling them about this reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Now, you can call that being sent, fulfilling the Great Commission, being a kingdom worker, a kingdom... Like, it's been marketed 900 different ways. Just go tell people about Jesus. It is that simple. Another way that we can pursue the kingdom is to serve it here locally in our congregation. We are all a part of this same kingdom together. And again, we can't be passive in this kingdom. It should be breaking our hearts and moving us to action 
that every week in our kids and youth programs alone, we are short 60 volunteers to come and tell students about Jesus. And that's just those two areas. That's not talking about worship or production or the cafe or any other area in our church. We are to share in this work, right? That's what Paul says, to share in his sufferings and in his glory. So pursue that kingdom, find a way to serve it and to tell people about it. And if that is your next step, then I wanna encourage you to just find a staff member after service and stay because we can tell you about it right now. Here in a few weeks, there will be another serve tour that you can go on. It happened today, but don't wait that long. Go for it today. Fair warning, if you talk to me, you're serving in youth. Pursue the kingdom, yeah. Those kids deserve somebody, and I hope that person can be you. Now, as we get ready to to head out of here, no matter where you're at in your walk, you can take one of these steps today. So we're going to put them all up on the screen, and if you're somebody who looks at your phone a lot, which is most of us, I'd encourage you to go ahead and pull out your phone and take a picture of those three things. Set it as your lock screen, as your home screen. Don't change it until you take a step. Remember to pursue that relationship with the Father, accountability and community, and pursue the kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and just thank you for your son. Thank you for the reality that you love us, that you're working on us, you're not giving up on us. Father, I pray for those of us who are maybe chasing this life of good enough. Father, I pray that we chase you, we chase your spirit, we listen to it, and that we move to action. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.